You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 14. There's um, still... This morning, we're not going to finish everything in John 14, but we're probably going to wrap up John 14. This, you, you might be happy to know that. I don't know. We've been lingering towards the end of it now for some time. Um, but there's, there are uh, really two phrases, two clauses here that I want to look at this morning, uh, namely the, the, at the end of verse 28, where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I, and verse 30. The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Believe it or not, there's a ton of things that we need to go over in those uh, two clauses. For the sake of uh, context, let's start with verse 27, and we'll read through verse 31. Jesus says to his 11 disciples in the upper room, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Heavenly Father, we do look to you this morning as we have some things here that are very difficult to understand. And we ask, O oh Father, that you be pleased, O oh Lord, to give us, give us a ton of minds, give us the ability to concentrate on your word and sustain our minds, Father, as we, as we take in some of the, really arguably, some of the most difficult concepts for us to get our minds around. So, Father, we ask for this grace for your glory, not simply for theological curiosity, but that we would bask and that we would, we would find ourselves basking in wonder and worship over you and what you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I know some of you have noticed that we didn't get to that ending phrase there in verse 28, if you look with me to verse 28, namely Jesus' words, for the Father is greater than I. And I know some of you noticed because I was sun, I think it was Sunday afternoon, maybe maybe it was Donald and myself, Donald and Alex were talking, and I just happened to casually mention, well, there is this one little phrase, the end of verse 28 we didn't get to, and I was met with a, we noticed that. <laughs> and um, I, I, I had full intentions of getting to it this week. Um, it, but I will say, and I want to try to discipline myself, we could spend a couple of hours on this phrase. And it would twist our brains into actually a complete pretzel. Um, and that isn't what you signed up for this morning, is it? You don't want your brain to twist into a pretzel. Um, I don't want to twist your brain into a pretzel. I really rather my brain not be twisted any more into a pretzel than it already is. And one thing I don't want to do is I don't want to overly fatigue our minds because I really want to get the burden of the message this morning is really to get to verse 30 and look at the idea, you know, what Jesus says, well, the ruler of this world is coming. And believe it or not, there's a relationship between these two phrases. I hope to show this morning that there's a relationship between these two phrases, and it's a comforting relationship between these two phrases. 
So let's start with this. What is Jesus saying when he says the Father is greater than I? Now somebody, if you're not that familiar with this, you might be saying, okay, what's the big deal that Jesus says the Father, you know, the Father is greater than I? Why is that a big deal? Well, some of us who have been studying this for a while, especially those of you who have been with us since the very beginning when we were in John chapter 1 in the opening verses, which we've been over so much that you know, I thought, am I going to ask everybody to turn there? Probably many of us don't even need to turn there. But if you're not there, if you cannot think of the opening sentence of John's gospel, then turn to chapter 1 and verse 1. But if you know it by now, which many of you probably do, because I keep going over it and over it and over it, then let's just think it through. How does it begin? In the beginning, right? In the beginning. And of course, it's wanting us to, to think of the opening words of the Bible, Right? In the beginning. That is before anything was made. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yes. And through him all things were made, right? And without him not one thing was made that has been made, and in him is life. Now what do we learn from that? What we learn from that is that the Word is uncreated because it's through Him that every created thing has come to be. We learn that the Word was with God, and we learn that the Word is God. Furthermore, we know from Scripture that Scripture is emphatic that there is only one God. So what do we have here? We have one of the clearest statements of the Trinity in these opening passages. And when we add verse 14 of John chapter 1 to the, to the mix, we learn that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So it's, there's, there's no contest about this. Who is the Word? The Word is Jesus. He is what we call in theology the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we learn that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is fully God. In other words, he is of the same substance as God. If he was of a different substance, then he would be different than God. If he is a God and he is of a different substance than the Father, then he's another God. That would mean there are two gods. There are not two gods. There is only one God. Now, somebody's like, well, okay, um, I see what you're talking about, Rick, about the pretzel thing. It's starting to happen. Um, yes, the Trinity is really hard for us to understand. The Catechism makes it really easy. Uh, well, I, don't say it, I shouldn't say it makes it really easier. It helps, okay? Don't, don't exaggerate here, Rick. It's false advertising. But if we think about, if we think about the, the, the three persons of the Trinity, there's one God, there are three persons, they're equal in power and glory. If you just memorize that phrase, equal in power and glory, what that means is the Son is equal in power and glory with the Father. That means that He is at equal in terms of all of the attributes that the Father possesses, the Son also possesses. Okay, now we'll say, now why is this such a big deal when we come to chapter 14 and the end of verse 28? Because Jesus is saying the Father is greater than I. Okay, what do we do with that? All right, it gets a little more complex. 
When we turn our attention to the Son, okay, when we turn our attention to God, we find three persons, one God. If that is not enough, when we turn our attention to the Son, we discover that there are two natures in one person. And we say, what? Two natures, one person. And as we read through the Gospels, sometimes the Holy Spirit is inspiring the Gospel writer to emphasize the deity of Jesus. What do I mean by deity? Deidad. What do I mean by deity? His, let me make up a word. If Connie Johnston was here right now, she'd let me do this as long as I put it in quotation marks. And I said, his godness. It, it speaks of his godness, if you will. The deity of Christ speaks of his godness. And there are many texts in scripture that, that emphasize Jesus' godness. I'll give you an example. In John chapter 8, when we were there, we saw that Jesus says to his opponents, before Abraham was, I what? I am. Now, they already wanted to kill him because he was making himself, John 5, 18, he was making himself equal with God. Now, what is Jesus doing when he says, before Abraham was, I am? They say, you're not even 50 years old. And he's making a reference. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is making a reference to the burning bush where God reveals himself as the great I am. And Jesus is basically saying, the great I am is before you. He stands right before you. That is an example of where Jesus' deity is being emphasized. His godness, if you will. Deidad. Deidad de Christ. His godness is being emphasized. Now, in other passages of Scripture, Jesus' humanity is being emphasized. And um, we need no more example than what we have here in verse 28. If you go back to John 14, verse 28, Jesus says, For the Father is greater than I. Now, I, I think, I'll tell you what really helps me with this verse, and I'll tell you how I have... How I, how I understand this verse is this way. Let's think about the assignment that Jesus has before him. Okay, the word become flesh, Jesus takes on a body. The second person of the Trinity takes on a human person, if you will, the person of Jesus Christ. But what is his purpose in doing so? His purpose in doing so is to come as the second Adam isn't it? Or I think we probably should say to come as the last Adam. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that from passages like Romans 5, passages like 1 Corinthians 15. God creates in the beginning. He creates a, the world. He creates a utopian paradise called the Garden of Eden. He creates the first man. He puts man in the Garden of Eden, puts him and places him in a probationary period. And there, Adam is functioning as the representative of all humanity. He represents us all in the garden. Adam fails in the garden. When Adam sins and rebels against God, what happens? All humanity plunges into darkness, right? And we're born in that darkness as rebels against God. That's the way we come out of the box. Now, in that event, in Genesis 3, God himself comes in and preaches the gospel, and he preaches that a son is going to come who is going to redeem his people. And Jesus is that son, isn't he? Jesus is the son, and he comes as the second Adam or the last Adam. 
And what's interesting is just as Adam was tempted in a beautiful garden, Jesus is tempted at the beginning of his ministry in a wilderness, isn't he? And we'll see these many parallels. We're going to maybe get time this morning to see some other uh, parallels. But let's think this through. Okay, Jesus, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's speaking as the last Adam. Now, someone will say, well, wait a second. Now, the last Adam is not really in this context. Not so fast. Actually, I believe that it is. They'll say, well, where is that at? Well, what is Jesus telling his disciples? He's telling his disciples that he's got to go. His heart is troubled. Why? He's being betrayed. Jesus pushed the button. He commands Judas Iscariot to leave. He pushes the button on the machinery that is going to crucify him. Jesus does this. He is walking in perfect obedience to the Father. He is still under trial, so, so to speak. And what is he going to do? Well, he's, they're going to they're gonna move. Let me give you one parallel now. I'll just jump ahead and I'll give you one parallel now. He is going to leave the upper room to go to where? Where does he go from the upper room? He goes to a garden known as the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't he? Isn't it interesting that Jesus is betrayed and arrested in a garden? I think that's quite interesting. And Jesus, as the last Adam, is representing his church. And Jesus will perfectly obey the Father, even if it means dying an awful death on the cross. I would submit that that is in the context here. So Jesus, speaking as the last Adam, says the Father is greater than I. So that we can say in this limited sense, but we need to be really careful here. We could say in this limited sense that Jesus, as the uh, as the Last Adam is less than the Father, but we need to be really careful there. I've seen, I've seen writers try to clarify this, and I've seen writers, very learned writers, write things like glorified humanity is always going to be less than God. Okay, that's a true statement unless we're talking about Jesus. The only problem is these writers were talking about Jesus. And I find that to be a horrifying statement if we're talking about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is one person who is God in the flesh. You see how slippery this is? Now, why is this so important? Because of those slips of the pen that have been happening for the last five or six years, especially in some academic circles and the evangelical community. Some of you are aware of this. Some of you are aware that there are some writers that are pushing what's known as as ESS. How many are familiar with ESS or EFS? Now, what is this? I'm going to say, what is ESS? Eternal subordination of the Son. Eternal subordination of the Son. Or EFS, it's the same thing, only it'd be the eternal functional subordination of the Son. It's all saying the same thing. And what are these writers saying? They're saying that eternally Jesus is subordinate to the Father. Um, We mustn't go there. Um, Let's not go there. That is a day. I I find that to be a very dangerous. That's just one step back into Arianism and Marcionism. That's one step back into a, a false view of the Trinity right there. We've got to reject that. And I'm bringing it to your attention because some of these writers are very prolific, one of them being Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem is very helpful in a lot of areas. He's enormously helpful. In fact, he's the general editor of the ESV Bible, many many of you are carrying around. But on this, I think it's very dangerous. 
So we need to be on our guard. What do we mean by functional subordination? Historically, Christianity has taught an economic uh, subordination or a functional subordination only insofar as it applies to uh, redeeming souls, redeeming humanity. And it goes something like this. Out of eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they covenant with one another to say, okay, Father says, I'm going to decree everything. Son says, all right, I'm going to take on flesh, and I'm going to carry this out. I'm going to accomplish salvation on the cross. And the Holy Spirit says, okay, I'm going to apply it. So in terms of this project, there is this agreement on behalf of the Trinity that they're going to function in this nature that it appears to be subordinate. Now, historically, Christianity has never said that this carries any kind of eternal subordination. Why? Well, because of the equal in power and glory part. That's why. Now, some of you are saying, okay, this is always starting to sound like that theology nerd stuff you guys do in the hallway. It sounds like that because that's what it is. Just be advised that it's really, really important stuff. Many of the things that carry the church astray begin in, the, begin in academia and as they filter out. I just want you to be prepared for that, especially want our youngsters to be prepared for this as they go off to university and college. This is really important. Now, let's move on to um, the ruler of this world in verse 30. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. All right, now what's going on there? Well, the first thing we need to do, is, I think, is, is to define world. This is really, really important because um, I, I had a conversation not very long ago with some, with some um, folks that are very misled because, and I know one of the reasons they're so misled is they're, they're refusing to take the word world in context. When you think of world, probably the first thing that might come to mind is, okay, the clouds, the sun, the moon, the stars, the birds, the trees, the grass, all of that stuff. And sometimes when Scripture uses the word world, that's exactly what's in view, is all of that stuff. But other times when the word world is used, it's more specific in that. It's more narrow than that. For example, in John 3.16, which we just read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, would, whoever believes in him should never perish but have eternal life, right? What's meant by world there? Is it the sun, the moon, the stars, the flowers, birds, and the trees? Well, not exactly, not specifically. And you remember when we were all the way back in John chapter 3, some of you remember we spent a lot of time talking about that, didn't we? And what did we conclude? We concluded from the context of John 3.16 that what's in view is fallen humanity in opposition to God. Well, how do we know that? Because it's the, that's the context of the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Why, well, why did, why did Jesus come? He comes to die on a cross to do what? To die in place of those whom he's come to save, to pay the sin debt that we owe, to redeem us, to satisfy his justice and make uh, salvation possible. Correct? Now, if our, if our definition is correct, then we should be able to put our definition in the verse and it should make sense. So we would say something like this. For God so loved fallen humanity in opposition to him that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him, whoever out of this fallen humanity would believe in him should never perish but have eternal life. 
I would submit to you that that flies. I think that works. I think you write that down on the desk. I think you do just fine. Um, now, can we take that definition and can we put that definition in the verse we come to this morning, to, namely verse 30 of chapter 14? For the ruler of this world is coming. Is he the ruler of fallen humanity in opposition to God? Well, the answer to that is yes, but I would submit to you that the answer is too narrow. It needs to be broadened. Why does it need to be broadened? Three reasons. Context, context, and what's the third? Context. Why? What's in the context that would suggest that we should broaden this? The ruler of the world. The ruler of this world is in the context. Who is the ruler of this world? We've been met with the ruler of this world a couple of times. Back in John chapter 12, verse 31, for example, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? And we have met him in John chapter 13, verse 27, when we see that Satan actually enters Judas Iscariot. I take it at that point in time, Judas Iscariot is, 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 is possessed by Satan himself uh, at that time. Now, uh, all of this to say is, uh, who is the ruler of this world? He is an angel. He's a powerful, fallen angel. You know, um, I, uh, there's, a, there's a sermon written by a well-known theologian on this subject. He's talking about angels, and um, he, has, he has just a wonderful insight into this. You know, he begins his sermon by, by saying, you know, today we have the ability to see that the universe is much larger than our ancient counterparts had the ability to see. In other words, we've got these telescopes where we can look way out into outer space and we can see. And it's kind of neat to do. I don't know if you've ever done it. You, you, you poke around on the Internet on your phone or something, you can see pictures of galaxies that our ancient forefathers would have never seen. They would have never have known. And the point that this theologian is making is, even though, you know, while we have all this technology that enables us to see that the galaxies and to see that the universe is much larger than our forefathers ever imagined, nevertheless, modern man has a much smaller view of the world than his forefathers did. Now, why is, why is this theologian saying that? I think this is extraordinarily insightful. He's saying that because angels are denied by so many modern people today. When you start talking about angels, you start talking about, um, you know, these kinds of things, they think you're talking about leprechauns and Bigfoot, and they think you're talking about, you know, ghosts and ghouls and goblins. Um, but the Bible is really clear. There is an angelic realm and if we dismiss that, you can see where the theologian's going. You dismiss that, your world becomes much smaller. The world is much bigger than that. The world is to include this angelic realm. So, for example, over Christmas time, we're studying the birth narratives, and this angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces to her that she's going to be with child. Or you go to Isaiah 6. And you see these powerful angels attending to uh, Almighty God. Uh, and such and such you go through Scripture. You find uh, these angelic beings. They're ministering spirits that do the bidding of God. So we have this, an, this entire angelic realm, myriads and myriads of these angels. They're often referred to as the Lord's hosts or His army of angels, if you will. But in the midst of this angelic realm, there are two types of angels. 
There are the good angels like Gabriel, like these powerful cherubim and seraphim, but there are also fallen angels, and they're referred to as demons, and they're led by Satan himself, Satan, the devil, Lucifer, um, whatever name you want to give to him. Uh, and you read through the Bible, and you read through the Gospels especially, you find uh, Jesus exercising uh, these demons uh, out of people. And um, what we have here in verse 30 is the ruler of this world. Now, I'm going to get uh, the definition I'm going to suggest for world here is that world is to include both fallen humanity and fallen, um, fallen angels in opposition to God. Does that make sense? So we're adding, we're adding the angelic realm, the fallen angelic realm to this. Now, why is this so important? I'm going to give you a real practical reason why this is so important. Someone reads verse 30 and says, okay, the ruler of this world, that is Satan. Okay, I get it. I think I get it. Satan rules the world. God rules heaven. Is that how it works? Well, there's some truth to it, right? But it's highly misleading, isn't it? Because it would almost suggest that, okay, Satan is running this world, and God's running heaven, and they're duking it out, and eventually God's going to win, and then God's going to rule the world when that's over. Is that the way it works? That's not the way it works. That's why we need to be more specific in this. Satan is ruling this fallen darkness is what he is ruling. That's what he is in charge of. Let's look at a couple passages of Scripture to flesh this out a little further. Let's start with Ephesians 6, or Ephesians 2. Let's start with Ephesians 2. Let's start there because many of us are very familiar with Ephesians 2 because I turn to it all the time. You say, well, Rick, a sermon's not a sermon if we don't go to Ephesians 2. You got to go to Ephesians. I don't know that I go that often, but Ephesians 2, there you see the Apostle Paul speaking to believers in Ephesus who were formerly unbelievers. He said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following what? The course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan himself. That's the ruler of this world, if you will the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Here we see that he is at work in the sons of disobedience. Who would the sons of disobedience be? It would be all believing humanity. Unbelieving humanity, I'm sorry. It'd be all unbelieving humanity. It's a little, you just changed one little prefix and you're in big time trouble. It's unbelieving humanity, okay? So make sure we get it right here. Un, as unbelievers, we'd really be offended if someone suggests to us that we're being led by Satan. Well, let's be really sure we know what we're talking about. So keep your place in Ephesians. We're going to come back to it. But let's take a look at 1 John. You go to Revelation, turn left. You got, you got Jude, then you got 3 John, then you got... First or Second John, then you come to First John chapter five. Oh, one of the last things that John writes in his first letter, verse nineteen. Verse nineteen. This is a good one to have in your toolkit, by the way. John says, "We know that we are from God, 
and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, again, we need to, you, you see there's that word world again. And we need to be precise with our definition. What's meant by that? Unbelieving humanity and fallen angels. They're under the power of the evil one. The church is not under the power of the evil one any longer. So you see, we need to be specific, but the whole world lies in power of the evil one. Now, someone might say, no, okay, how is it that we're in his power? How does he control us? Well, the context of John will give us an answer to that. If you look back to John chapter 4, start with verse 1 there. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Uh-oh, so there's some spirits who are from God, some are, when we're to put them to the test. How do we put them to the test? Well, he says there's many false prophets who have gone out into the world. False prophets, false teachers. Okay, how do we tell the difference? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, whoa, is there a message here for our modern society? You mean to tell me that every religion out there that refuses, that refuses to preach Jesus as he is offered in the gospel is, a false, is false prophecy? Is that what he's saying? Exactly. We could go a step further and say every world religion out there that teaches that Jesus, that, that teaches something other than Jesus, that does not proclaim Jesus as he is offered in the gospel, as God in the flesh, the Son of God, is actually the spirit of the evil one. John goes as far as to say that he is from the Antichrist. Look at verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. If you're in the business of sharing the faith, it's not going to be long before someone's going to call you arrogant. They're going to say you're really arrogant. What you're suggesting is that your religion is the right religion and everyone else's religion is false. Has anybody ever been, has anybody heard that line? You're not going to share your faith much before you hear that line. How do we respond to that line? If I, I always say, listen, this is not my message. If I was making this up, you're right, I'd be arrogant. But I didn't make this up. Looky here. Look at chapter, John, 1 John chapter 4. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. I'm commanded by Christ to preach this. And you're accusing me of being arrogant. That's fine. But don't accuse me of being unloving. Because the world everywhere is teaching. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. In other words, follow any spirit you want. Just be sincere in it. Is that what it's saying? I think it is. Now, how is sincerity going to make up for following a false teacher? In fact, the more sincerely, the more sincerely you follow that false teacher the further in bondage you are to that false teacher. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's a famous uh, passage there. Part of it is he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Oftentimes we say he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. We paraphrase that phrase. Verse 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. What John is saying here is the same thing that Jesus teaches us in John chapter 10 when he says, listen, my sheep know my voice. 
My sheep hear my voice. It's the same thing. Go out this afternoon. If you want to prove, if you want to prove this empirically, not that we should do it. I mean, it's God's word. We don't need to prove it empirically. But if you want to see it in action, go out this, go, just go out and start, just talk to a few people. Talk to some friends and some relatives that, that, that you know to be unbelieving. Talk to them about Jesus this afternoon and watch the reaction. Maybe, you know, maybe they'll listen. Maybe they'll listen to you. But generally speaking, you've done that before, haven't you? And have they listened? No, not really. But what you're in hopes of is you're planting seeds, and the seeds will grow, and those seeds will flourish. That's how all of us have come. Somebody talked to us once upon a time. We didn't want to listen. But then eventually, by God's Holy Spirit and by His work in our hearts, we listened and we embraced. But you'll see this thing going on uh, as you talk to people. Um, another passage here, 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 3 and 4. Get, get especially verse 4 in your toolbox. Well, the Apostle Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, why, do not people, why, why don't people come to Jesus? Because His beauty and His glory is veiled. They, 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 can't, they can't see it. It's, it's veiled. It's like you've got a blindfold on your, on your eyes. In their case, verse 4, the God of this world. Who's the God of this world? He is the ruler of this world. It's Satan himself. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan's in the business of counterfeiting things. Jesus comes with a ministry of light and a ministry of truth. And Satan follows behind with a ministry of darkness and a ministry of falsehood. Where Jesus is in the business of enlightening people, Satan is in the business of blinding them. And he has blinded the minds. You meet an unbeliever, the unbeliever is blind. This is the unbeliever's condition. If it weren't this way, they would be believers. But their condition is they are blinded by the lies of Satan himself. He lies. He says, don't listen to that gospel preacher. He's a fanatic. He's into this too much. He takes the Bible too literally. Don't listen to him. Or don't listen to him. He's a heretic. Don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, should you listen to him? You should only listen to him insofar as he is teaching the word of God. How do we know the difference between a true preacher of the gospel and a false one? We take what he says and we look to the scriptures for ourselves to see if those things are so. And that's what we must do, whether I'm up here speaking or it's someone else. And Alex would love it if you examine him very thoroughly next uh, Sunday. He, he, he would like that, right, Alex? Yeah, he's saying, yeah, he'd like, he'd like that. And all, all kidding and teasing aside, I, I, you know, I'm giving everybody a hard time. You're all going to gang up on me afterwards. Um, but all kidding aside, you have to, I want you to take everything that I say as well. And, and look to the Scriptures to be sure that it is so. Why? One more passage, Ephesians 6. I spend a lot of time in prayer in this passage. Ephesians 6 and verse 12. I spend a lot of time with this one. The Apostle Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Do you see that? So ultimately, this battle, it's not a battle between us and other people. This battle actually is cosmic. It's, it's in a realm that m- many modern people don't even believe exists. You know, one of the scary things that some people are talking about, um, you know, in wartime is some of the, I understand that Russia has submarines that can go undetected, that they, can, they could actually be on our shores undetected. They could evade our radar. No one would know they're there. If you were Satan, you would want to move about like that, wouldn't you? Undetected. You'd want to dupe everybody into believing that he... He'd want to dupe everyone into believing he doesn't even exist. But you know, that's got to be frustrating for him because he is so vain, he wants your praise. I mean, that really has to be miserable, doesn't it? In one sense, he has to be invisible, but what he really wants is your praise. That would really, and, that, and that's the way it is with wickedness. It can never be satisfied. It can never be satisfied. Let's go back to John chapter 14. Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming. How is he coming? Is Satan himself going to show up? No, Judas Iscariot is. See how that works? Maybe I can slip in Isaiah 14. I'm looking every, well, we're going to save it for another day. Someone's saying, you know, do you want to go in? Take a few minutes. I'm getting mixed reading here. No more about our minds hanging in until then. Let's do it. I'm getting a I think you guys are going to do it. You're going to do it, aren't you? How does Isaiah 14 fit in? These world leaders. Isaiah 14 speaks of a world leader. It doesn't name king of Babylon by name. It just says the king of Babylon, which is interesting. These guys don't get named. Why wouldn't they bother? Why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't the Holy Spirit want Isaiah to write in a name? Because that would be giving them too much credit. That would be giving them, that would be giving them too much glory. There's no name. They're nameless. Why? Because they're insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But while they're alive and reigning, they tyrannize the whole world. Babylon becomes emblematic of worldly power in opposition to God. Peter uses Babylon that way in his first letter, doesn't he? When he speaks about she who is at Babylon, he's speaking about the church who at that time is in Rome. And Rome is referred to as Babylon. Why? Because it's a worldly, a worldly power in opposition to God. Now, as you look around this world, every generation has these worldly powers who are in opposition to God. We've got them today, don't we? And right now we're in a time. One of the reasons I wanted to bring this in is because we're in a time of these shifting sands all around the world, and we're feeling this, and it's making us anxious. And what we need to understand is look what happened to the king of Babylon. You know, you guys don't need to turn there if you don't. If you want to turn to Isaiah 14 again, I'll show you what happened to the king of Babylon. We read it earlier, but what happens to the king of Babylon? Isaiah 14. If you look at verse uh, 12, Oh, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Look at the language that's used there. 
How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the amount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, that is to the grave. You are brought down to the grave. And this is the fate of all world leaders who go down this street unrepentant including the world leaders who are in power right now. We need not fear them. We need not worry about them ultimately. That doesn't mean they can't cause suffering. They are causing lots of suffering. But the point that I want to make here is that these world leaders are emblematic of what has happened to the ruler of this world. You see, they're chasing right after their father, when a man or, or a woman decides that they want to have so much power that they want to lord over everybody and they want everybody to see their power and everybody to see their money, they're following after the evil one. And what is their fate going to be? It's going to be the fate of the evil one if they stay on that track. And what's going on here? This is the connection. This is where we start to see the beauty. Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming. Who's coming? Judas Iscariot is coming. He works for the evil one. And he's bringing a band of soldiers who work for the evil one. All unbelieving humanity is represented here. And what is Jesus about to do? He's about to knock him down on his butt. That's what he's about to do. And why is that so significant? Well, because Jesus is the last Adam. And he represents us all. And when Jesus is victorious at the cross, Jesus is victorious for us all. That's why it's important. That's why it's so very important that we get right with Jesus. There's only two teams. There's only two teams. If God can take the king of Babylon and so easily eradicate him, then what could happen to everyone else who remains in opposition to him? And make no mistake about it, we think unbelief is a little bitty thing, but when we walk in unbelief, we are saying, God, you are a liar and not to be trusted. And unless we think that's a small thing, let us understand how bad unbelief is. And I never like to leave on those kind of notes. Boy, that would be a bad note to leave on, wouldn't it? Let's leave on this note. Jesus came because he loves sinners. He came because he loves to redeem sinners. As you pray for your loved ones who do not know the Lord, pray with good cheer. We might not see their conversion in this life, but pray with good cheer because God in his time is very likely to answer our prayers. I'm not promising. He, I can't promise anything, but what can I, I can say is this is the disposition of God. The disposition of God is to save people. The disposition of God is that he does take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but desires all people to, get, to all people come to saving relationship with him 
isn't it? So as we think, and I know this is, this is one of the biggest thorns in the sides of many of us, our, our, our friends and our relatives and our family members who yet have bowed their knees to Jesus, keep praying. There's not a person who comes to faith who doesn't have people praying for them. And the fact that we're praying for them says an awful lot. Let us be of good cheer because it is God's disposition. It is God. God loves to show mercy. The Holy Spirit loves to reveal the beauty of Jesus. This is something that God loves to do. So let's be busy and let's pray. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father, for sustaining our minds through what is really a very mentally rigorous message. And Father, though some of us maybe have only heard these things once, will be like, whoa, what is that? Father, I pray you'll sustain them. The Father, they would be anxious and want to come back and hear more and want to come back and hear more and want to come back and hear more. For, oh, Lord, you've promised us that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And it's through hearing these messages. Lord, may we be appraised that if we're on the wrong team, we can see our miserable end and that you, that unbelief is such a grave sin it's such a horrible sin it's such an awful it's such an awful estate as the as the old preachers used to say and oh father may we be awakened of that estate may be awakened that we would flee from it and may oh lord may we embrace you with a saving faith a faith that you give us with repentance that you give us turning from our sin and embracing jesus and there may we see the great love that jesus has for the lost the great love that you O father have for the lost the great love that the holy spirit has for enlightening and reversing satan's ministry of falsehood reversing it with a ministry of truth and a ministry of enlightenment enlighten our valley we pray O lord light it up O father by the power of your gospel working by the administration of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.